let's pray together before we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that even over distance we can worship before your throne together. <coughs> that we can worship in spirit and truth because of what Jesus has done for us. We can come before you now. I pray as we look in your word that you would teach us, that you would speak to us, that you convict us of sin, and that you would lead us into righteousness. Encourage us today, wherever we are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All he could see were rocky crags and cliffs and excavated holes across the stony landscape. And beyond that, water. The Mediterranean Sea stretching as far as he could see. Here and there, a, a fellow prisoner sat or wandered or, or was at work in the quarries. The sun beat down. His stomach growled. His back ached from sitting on rocks. And he felt like his old bones couldn't take much more of this. John had been shipped off to this remote prison island by Roman authorities after he wouldn't shut up about Jesus, which apparently they found seditious. And in this place, John must have wondered what had gone wrong. Like he had seen Jesus do incredible things back in the day, miracle after miracle, performed with breathtaking compassion. He had died, yes, but then they had seen him alive, risen from the dead. And even though Jesus left to return to heaven, he told them that, that the kingdom of God had been initiated and that he'd be with them and that he'd come back for them. And then after that, John and the other apostles had done amazing things themselves. But now, he was the last man standing. Peter, James, the others had all been killed. His ministry had been abruptly halted. He was mistreated, left to die with no escape. He was isolated and alone. All the, the people he loved and cared for were across the sea. Where was the kingdom? Was Jesus ever coming back? Did he even care about them anymore? Did the gospel still have power? Where was the proof? And they failed in their mission. If there was ever a set of circumstances that inherently called into question the truths of Jesus, John was in it. And no one would blame him for harboring, harboring a few doubts or even giving in to hopelessness or despair. And maybe you've been there yourself. No, not to the island of Patmos or, uh, or in prison, but have there been situations in your life that seem to call God's truths into question? Have things happened to you that, that make you wonder what is God up to, or even cause you to doubt that he's up to anything, or that he cares about you? 
You may even be in this place right now, and you feel despair creeping in. So what should we do when, when questions flood our minds and it's not easy to believe? Well, it was in that very place that God gave John an apocalyptic vision, which we know as the book of Revelation, the, the final book in our Bibles. And in this vision, God pulled back the curtain on what was really going on, what God was doing right then, where he was guiding the future, and perhaps most importantly, as we'll see today, who Jesus actually is. This would have changed everything for John. And I think he can do the same for us. So let's turn there together to Revelation 1. I hope you have a Bible at home or you can find one online. Revelation chapter 1. We began our journey through this book last week, and we saw how Jesus had been unveiled to us for our blessing. And that he is currently revealed to us in the gospel for his glory. And he is yet to appear again, to be revealed again in the skies for everyone to see. Today, the, the rest of the stage will be set for this mysterious, magnificent book. Jesus' answer to the state of John's world wasn't to just tell him to, to buck up, John. Well, he, he didn't instruct John to, to start a revolution or even new church programs. He didn't say things would get better with more cultural approval, or more Christians in positions of power, or less persecution, or larger church budgets. No, Jesus' answer was to give John a revelation of himself, to impress upon his mind a powerful image of the exalted Christ. See, what John and, and what the church needed more than anything was who Jesus was. And what we need more than anything is to know who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. And so, John's account goes like this, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So right away, John wants to establish some solidarity with his readers. He was their brother, part of the same family, and he was their partner, a companion. But what I find most interesting here is what he was a partner with them in. It says, uh, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom, and the patient endurance, that are in Jesus. So three things. Tribulation, which refers to affliction or distress in general here. The kingdom, so the reign and rule of Jesus over the world. And patient endurance, what is required to make it through tribulation into the kingdom in its fullness. But notice, all of these things are in Jesus. Which means, if you're in Jesus, this should be what you expect to experience in life. Like This is the normal Christian experience. Tribulations and kingdom. Trials and triumph. 
In Acts 14.22, Paul said it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. And considering this was Jesus' experience himself, why would we expect any less? Anyway, John says this is his experience too, as it would be for the churches he wrote to. John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom of patient and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, no matter how much this did or didn't distress him, it didn't derail him. In verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me. So he's being in the spirit. It was possibly a state of prayer or worship, or more likely it was a prophetic state where this spirit is guiding or inspiring John. Side note, this is the only time the Lord's Day is mentioned in Scripture, speaking most likely of Sunday, the day that the early church adopted as their day of worship. Anyway, John was sitting there doing something spiritual when suddenly... I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now that must have made him jump a mile. Like, can you imagine someone blasting a trumpet behind you? <laughs> no, it wasn't actually a trumpet. It, John says it was a loud voice like a trumpet. But notice, John wasn't just having some inner mystical experience in his head. The voice came from behind him, outside of himself, and it sure got his attention. What did the voice say in verse 11? So just imagine this resounding voice saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now we might wonder, well, why these seven churches in particular were to receive this revelation? After all, there were bigger and more important cities John could have written to, and there were certainly more than just seven churches in Asia Minor. Some even speculate that these seven churches represent seven eras of church history. Well, here, the, the order that he goes in, the order of the churches, actually gives us a hint, because if you look on a map, these seven cities go in a circular transportation route, starting in Ephesus and finishing at Laodicea. It's a basic explanation that these seven cities all along this, this trading route acted as natural distribution centers to, to spread the message to the other churches in Asia Minor. But also notice again that there are seven churches, not six, not eight, seven. Seven is symbolic. It's, it's the biblical number of perfection or completion. And in all likelihood, these seven churches were representative of all churches. As we'll see, each church had unique issues and, and challenges, but each one also served as an example for the other six. So while it may be a stretch to, to identify our modern-day church with one specific church here, it's not a stretch at all to identify our church with all seven of them. This revelation was not just meant for them. It was meant for us in the church. 
So John is told to, to write what you see. And the first thing he sees is Jesus. Now, the next few verses are very poetic and symbolic, so it might not sound like Jesus right away. Or at least the Jesus you see in picture Bibles or paintings. But that's kind of the point. This is not Jesus as he was when he walked the earth. This is Jesus exalted in glory as the resurrected king. Here's the, here's the point we're going to see. The exalted son of man is awesome in glory. The exalted son of man is awesome in glory. He is awesome. This passage describes Christ as he is right now, though in reality it's nearly impossible to describe him. You can't, you can almost sense John just grasping for adequate language. This is why he uses so much imagery and so many metaphors, saying he was like this and like that, because human words can only approximate something so magnificent. Dane Ortland says, This one is so unspeakably brilliant that his resplendence cannot adequately be captured in words, so ineffably magnificent that all language dies away before his splendor. We actually have to be careful as we walk through this image together to not only just explain each individual part of the image, but we need to see it as a whole. As one scholar puts it, if we get caught up in every little detail, we run the risk of unweaving the rainbow. With the imagery, John's goal is to evoke the same overwhelming wonder which he experienced. So look at verse 12. Then I turned to, to see the voice that was speaking to me. He turned to, to see the voice what a picture that is. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. Now, this could have been like a massive seven-branched menorah, like candle stand, or more likely it refers to seven small table-like stands on which oil lamps were placed. But then John sees the person who was speaking to him. In verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now we already can tell this was Jesus, because the description of one like a son of man. Like I mentioned last week, Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's also another direct allusion to Daniel 7, where Daniel saw a vision and said, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. Exact same words. And this, this figure, this Son of Man in Daniel, was to receive all the kingdoms of this world and eternal worship. Anyway, this... This son of man that John saw was seen standing in the midst of the lampstands. Now this is such a foreign image for us with electricity, it's already difficult to picture. But the lampstands were not literal lampstands, they are symbolic. How do I know this? Well John tells us what they symbolize down in verse 20, where it says that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches that we just met. And they represent the churches. So, so God sees his churches as lamps that are set up 
and lit to shine light into a dark world. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'm going to come back to this, but for now, just take note that, that Jesus is in the midst of the lamps. He's not above, he's not below, not beside the lamps. He's in the middle of them. That's significant. Next, let's notice what Jesus is wearing. Okay, he says he's in the midst of the lampstands, halfway through verse 13, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, this could be referring to traditional clothing of the, the Jewish high priest would wear. But more likely, it's the traditional clothing of just nobility of that day. Servants would wear sashes as belts. Dignitaries wore them across their chest. Either way, this sees Jesus as an exalted, dignified person. And his sash is golden to boot. John then moves on to his physical features, starting with his hair. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And some of you are like, what? Jesus has white hair? Man, did Da Vinci ever get him wrong in his paintings? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. Doesn't matter, really. See, in symbolism, white hair always represented age and wisdom. But, Listen to this verse. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. You know where that's from? Daniel 7 again. But, in Daniel 7, the white hair describes the Ancient of Days referring to God. But then it, there it seems to see him, the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man as distinct figures. John blends these pictures together. The Son of Man is the Ancient of Days. <coughs> Excuse me. There's, there's no distinction between the two. John Piper says, this is remarkable. John is describing the Son of Man in terms used for God himself. John wants us to see something here about the age of Christ and the wisdom and, <coughs> excuse me, the dignity that come with age. Everlasting age. Thank you. Then let's take a look at Jesus' eyes <coughs> in the second half of verse 14. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Think about what fire does. It illuminates, it, it penetrates, it consumes. And in a refiner's fire, or a refiner's furnace, it, it cleanses and burns away impurities. We've all got our secrets and things that we don't want anyone else to know. And I, it's my ambition to, to walk with integrity, but there are things that you don't know about me. Just like I know there are things that I don't know about you. But Jesus knows us. Jesus sees it all. And his eyes burn past any masks we wear or facades we put up. That might sound scary. 
but it's also so liberating to know that Jesus sees it all and he still wants to be involved with us and he can burn the bad away. Amen. All my sins would, would ruin me if left on their own, but Jesus can save me and purify me with his eyes like fire. Verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, symbolizing the strength and stability of Christ in his glory. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2 of a, of a statue which represented all the mightiest empires of ancient history? What were its feet made of? Iron mixed with clay, and they crumbled. The exalted Son of Man symbolically has feet of firm, burnished bronze, already refined and strengthened by a furnace, nothing shaking him. And then the voice. Oh, <laughs> the voice. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. <laughs> Think of standing on a beach. Hearing the, the roar of ocean's waves, or, or standing near Niagara Falls, that the sound of water can be thunderous, deafening, and how much more so the voice of the creator of the waters. Earlier, his voice was likened to a trumpet with its sudden clarity. Now this image expresses the all-pervasive, inescapable power of his voice. Also, the Bible says that when God shows up, this is what it sounds like. In Ezekiel 43, the prophet Ezekiel said, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. About this time, if I were John, I'd already be awestruck. But he's not done yet. Look at verse 16. It says, In his right hand he held seven stars. And we're going to be told more about what these stars represent very soon. But notice that the stars here are in his hand. Whatever they are, Christ possesses and protects them. In art, Roman emperors often depicted themselves as surrounded by planets and stars, as if they were on par with these powers. But Jesus isn't a power like a star. He holds all powers in his hands. Keep going. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. Now this sounds very bizarre to us. Like, did he have a sword instead of a tongue? No, a, a double-edged sword was standard symbolism for a sword that cuts both ways. It wounds and it heals. Coming from his mouth, the sword refers to his words. So God's word, we know God's word certainly cuts both ways for us, wounding and healing. It sings and it stings. Here in the context of Revelation, this likely especially referred to a sword of judgment, as in Isaiah 11, where it says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Finally, 
end of verse 16. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. <laughs> Talk about awe-inspiring. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now John had seen Jesus' face shine like the sun once before, actually on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here he emphasizes that, that his face shone like the sun in full strength, full brilliance. The story is told of a Jewish man who was once taunted by the Roman Emperor Trajan. Since Jews and Christians worshipped an invisible god, the, the Romans viewed them essentially as atheists. It's like, we can see our gods, you can't see yours. And the emperor kept taunting the man with, show us your God, show us your God. Finally, the man offered, you know, I'll, I'll show you the face of God if you are prepared to gaze and gaze at one of his lesser servants. The emperor's like, okay, sure. To which the man replied, then, then sir, gaze at the sun. Of course you can't do that. You can't. I can't. It literally blind us. This illustrates why John uses such powerful imagery in Revelation. As D.A. Carson explains, you could say that Jesus shines with all the glory of God, or you could say that his face shines like the glory of the noonday sun. But the latter image is startlingly more effective. Carson goes on to describe how some cathedrals in Europe have made stained glass windows to show Jesus with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and he's half lion, half lamb, and if, and if you position yourself, the windows are positioned that if you stand in a certain place on the spring equinox, the sun outside will shine through Jesus' head. Like, well, that's kind of cool. But he says, it just looks stupid. <laughs> it's grotesque, and, and it totally misses the point as well. The point, like, the exalted Christ defies any adequate visual reproduction. And we're supposed to, to take in this image as a whole and marvel at the glory of the Son of Man. Jesus Think about it. Jesus is presented here as exalted, glorified, the fulfillment of prophecy, God's appointed Son of Man, dignified, priestly, wise, everlasting, and pre-existent as the Ancient of Days, one with God the Father, penetrating and purifying, insightful in judgment, steady, strong, and unshakable, his voice all-encompassing and beyond powerful, in control, the judge whose words both wound and heal and blindingly glorious. But now that you know what it's talking about, the imagery can probably say it even better. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This awesome being is about to deliver a message. You think we should pay attention? Also, I wonder, is, is there anything outshining his glory in our lives today? Like, are we allowing anything else to, to sit on the throne of our hearts? What are we allowing to monopolize our time and money and affections? Are we more captivated by any lesser glory? Like, some of us really need to repent today. And consider this, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Like this glorious king is who we're all going to see one day. Are we living like it? Notice one other amazing fact here, as Daryl Johnson points out. Here is the wonder of wonders, that brilliant awesome face was shining on John. In the Old Testament, that is the greatest blessing imaginable. Let your face shine on us. The risen and exalted Lord turns all his purity towards his people, not to crush us, but to free us so that we too shine with his light. In verse 17, we see John's fitting response to this glorious vision. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He faints. Right? He, he's so overwhelmed at the majesty of the exalted Christ that he, he passes out in fear. He was like Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and Job and Moses when they glimpsed the glory of God. The, the gulf between him and this, the holiness of the reigning Christ was impossibly wide. He was a sinner. He had no right to stand in the presence of such glory. Neither do we. But Jesus, mercifully, didn't leave John just incapacitated and cowering. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. Why didn't John need to be afraid? Well, it goes right back to the identity of Christ. Right? Jesus laid his hand on John in order to revive him and reassure him, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He was basically like, don't be afraid of me or anything else, because look at who I am. I'm sovereign over everything. See, not only is the exalted Son of Man awesome in glory, the exalted Son of Man is sovereign in authority. 
the exalted Son of Man is sovereign in authority. Like that's the main message of Jesus' words. Fear not. I am the first and the last. You remember last week what God the Father, the the Lord God, the the Almighty called Himself, the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last is another way to express the same truth, that, that he is absolutely sovereign over all of time. And Jesus, God the Son, shares the same eternal sovereignty as the Father. Like God says this in Isaiah, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now Jesus is also this. He is Lord. He is King. He is Redeemer. And He is God. Not only that, says the exalted Christ now holds the keys of death and Hades. And is anything truly more terrifying to us than death? Or, or the powers of hell? One might surmise that, that all other fears we have derive from these fears. Like these are our greatest enemies, and yet we no longer need to fear them. Why not? Because Jesus walked into death and Hades and walked out again. Johnson says it well. It says, On the cross, Jesus let all the powers that threaten to undo us have their unrestrained way with him. He let death take him captive. And then he burst out of the prison and carried away the prison keys. <laughs> Christian, are you fearing death today at all? Like, there's many reasons that we would fear death today of all days. But don't! Fear not! He holds the keys. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Rest in that. Remember that. Rest in that truth. And then in his authority, Jesus again commanded John to, to write down what he sees with his right hand upon him, co commissioning him for the job. In verse 19, he says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And I just wonder, are we willing to do whatever he calls us to do, whatever he commissions us to do, even if it seems impossible or terrifying? Whatever he calls us to do, I think we should be greatly encouraged by this today and because he is with us like this exalted glorified jesus is with us he's not taking a nap he hasn't taken a vacation he hasn't been fired or or laid off there's one final crucial truth i want us to see today from this passage and that's that the exalted son of man is alive and active the exalted Son of Man is alive and active. He's so alive, I don't know if you noticed it, that he defines life. Okay? He, it says he's the living one. In verse 17 into 18, Fear not, I am the first and the last, 
and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Like, if there was any doubt before that this was Jesus, it's gone now. And he's the only one who truly died and yet is alive forevermore. And should any truth be more comforting to us today? Jesus died. He died because we deserve to. But God in his love didn't want us to. And he rose from the dead because a dead savior can't save anybody. Now he's alive and he's, he's patiently waiting for many of us to come to repentance. He can't ever die again. As we read, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. If you never have before, I hope you will turn to this Christ today. Turning away from yourself and your sins and their cheap imitations of glory. It's only through the living one, the risen Christ, that you will find true life. It's only in him. So I implore you, turn to him today. Put your faith in him. He is alive and ready to save you. And for everyone, you may face many kinds of tribulation in this life because of Jesus. See, holding the testimony of Christ can cause suffering, like it did for John. It can, it can really hurt at times. But take heart, because the triumph of Christ is what assures us of ultimate victory. Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. In verse 19, we also see that Jesus can work through his people here on earth. As he commissioned John, we saw, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now, what Jesus was saying here has been thoroughly debated. Some see it as a, a key or a legend for, that interprets the rest of the book. One section is past, what you've seen, one, one is present, and one is future. But that, act, that interpretation is quite speculative. It's possible, but it's never spelled out that way. Though the book certainly does have past, present, and future aspects to it. I believe that this is a parallel. It's a parallel to God's title of him who is and was and is to come. So as God is, so is God's revelation, past present, and future. And John is told to write this down. Finally, in verse 20, Jesus gives John a, a helpful interpretation of some of the symbolism here. It says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, no one is positive who the angels of the churches were. Like we could use an interpretation of the interpretation here. <laughs> Some suppose that he was talking to the pastors of those seven churches. Others guess that the angels personify the spirit of the churches as the whole. Or it's possible that God had a guardian angel of sorts assigned to each church. I don't know. I, I lean toward the view that these are actual angels, but... I'm not sure. Fact is, there are 
whole systems and realities in the spiritual realm that we know so little about. But here's what we do know. Whatever these angel figures represent, they're under God. And they are, as verse 16 said, firmly in the Lord's right hand, under his charge. And whether they're angels or pastors or churches, Jesus is actively using his servants to bring about his ends on earth today. But here's the, the clearer picture that I more so want to draw your attention to today. It says at the very end, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Then look back at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. And now look forward to verse 1 of chapter 2. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Do you get what this means? Like, why would someone walk among lampstands? Well, to, to light them, to maintain them, to refuel the oil in them, to keep them burning. And what this picture is saying is that Christ, the living one, walks among his churches. He was right in their midst, as he is right in our midst, right in the midst of their tribulations and their triumphs. Christ was there in his glory, right in the midst of their worship, right in the midst of their witness. Christ was there. Like This is so encouraging. As Grant Osborne says, in the midst of the church's precarious situation in an evil world that both despises and persecutes them, Christ is with them, protecting and vindicating them. At the same time, he holds them accountable to persevere and remain faithful throughout their ordeal. And this is why in, in the letters to each church that follow in the next couple chapters, Jesus could say, I know. I know, I, I know what's happening to you. I, I know what you're up to. I know what they're up to. I know, I know your hard work. I know your struggles. I know your sin. I know your fears. I know your pain. I know. exalted son of man is alive and he's active and at work among his churches even now. He's building his church. He's tending to his lampstands. He knows us with the everlasting wisdom of the ancient of days. He sees us with his eyes of fire sanctifying and purifying us. He supports us during trials upon his immovably strong feet. He is speaking to us with his voice of roaring waters. He is holding us in his omnipotent hands. He's judging and refining and vindicating us with the sword of his mouth. And it's his blinding glory that should dazzle our attention. 
we just can't see all this with our physical eyes yet but we will and, and for now getting a peek behind the veil should wow us so brothers and sisters no matter what tribulation you face today take up patient endurance the endurance that can only be found in Christ and no matter what has you fretting and, and fearful today take up courage fear not behold the son of the old hymn says our God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past so your hope your confidence let nothing shake all now mysterious shall be bright at last as bright as the shining sun so gaze at the sun today. You're not the, the one far off in the sky. The one with us. The one walking among the lampstands. The exalted Son of God and Son of Man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would not only wow us today, but that you would so captivate our attention that everything else in this earth pales in comparison that all of our other desires and longings and, and passions and, and activities would pale in light of you Lord open the eyes of our hearts that we can see you like John saw you here shining in the light of your glory you are worthy. We praise you now in Jesus' name.